Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. We'll finish that today. But I read about a bizarre, I don't know what, what way to say it, a bizarre circumstance that reminded me of Nebuchadnezzar's, and we touched on that at the end last week, his sudden insanity. In one moment, he's on the palace roof, and then in the next moment, he takes on the, the mind of a beast, and he goes down on all fours, and he's, he's in the, the turf of the White House lawn, if you will, for seven years. But I read about this bizarre circumstance that fire authorities many years ago in California found a corpse in a burned out section of forest while assessing the damage done by a forest fire. So they're in there, they find this corpse in the midst of this forest fire and the damage. The deceased male was dressed in a full wetsuit complete with scuba tanks on his back, flipper on his feet, and face mask. The pathology lab determined that the person died not from burns, but from massive internal injuries. You're reading this or you're hearing this asking what on earth would a diver being, what would he be doing in the middle of a forest fire? So they checked his dental records and it revealed that on the very day of the fire, the victim was diving off the coast of California about 20 miles away from the forest. Firefighting helicopters with their large dip buckets scooped water from the ocean and flew to the forest fire and dumped it. So you can imagine one minute the diver is breaking the surface of the Pacific Ocean and the next moment he found himself in a dip bucket 300 feet in the air. And obviously he fell to his death. It's crazy. He's out swimming, diving. He gets super scooped up, transported 20 miles away, and fell to his death. And I thought, even more maybe than that is Nebuchadnezzar, if you can imagine him, strolling on his palace roof, and suddenly, the text says, immediately, he's transported to a state of insanity. And you might ask the question, and I kind of left you on a cliffhanger last week, whatever happened to Nebuchadnezzar after turning into a beast? Did it end? Did it change for him? What happened? I hope your hand and your nose is in Daniel chapter 4. It will explain what happened to him. Now remember in chapter 4, we're looking at God's sovereign decree over Nebuchadnezzar. In other words, he's over Daniel's life. He's over the nations. He gives them the four kingdom you know, that will flow out after Babylon. He's delivered the men from the furnace, and now he's given a decree over Nebuchadnezzar. The focus of chapter 4, and we've seen this the last two weeks, and so I'll be brief, is a dream that he had. He had a dream, and the dream, like in chapter 2, frightened Nebuchadnezzar. And so he woke up and he commanded it early in chapter 4, all of his diviners and enchanters and Chaldeans and mystics and those involved in witchcraft and the occult. He brought them all in in chapter 4 and he said, explain this to me. And finally, in, in chapter 4, Daniel was brought in. And so we will touch on this. The dream was revealed the dream was revealed. Nebuchadnezzar revealed that dream. Look at it with me. Let me just remind you to bring you to the end of the chapter. But in verse 10, the visions of my head, Nebuchadnezzar speaking, as I lay in my bed were these, I saw and beheld a tree in the midst of the earth. 
and its height was great, and the tree grew, and it became strong. This is what Nebuchadnezzar is telling Daniel. And its top reached to heaven and was visible to the end of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beast of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all the flesh was fled from, fed from it. Excuse me. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, and now this, a watcher, a holy one, it's an angel, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip all of its off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast uh, flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump uh, of, of, of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze until the tender grass in the tender grass and the field. There's the dream. He wanted to know what it meant and nobody could interpret it earlier in chapter four. So there it's revealed and he calls Daniel in. And of course, Daniel has insight from God himself who not only would allow him to see the dream, but interpret the dream. So the dream's revealed. Secondly, the dream is interpreted. Look at verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while. And the thoughts alarmed him. And the king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered him and said, my Lord, may it be, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. And so he, he's frightened by this. And you remember the interpretation was in a single phrase. Look in verse true, excuse me, 22. 22, Daniel said to him of the tree, it is you, O king, who have be grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown. It reaches to the heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. It was him but remember, and look down at 25, you, Nebuchadnezzar, shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and he gives it to whomever he will. There it is, interpreted. And so it's revealed to Nebuchadnezzar. He declares it. It's interpreted by Daniel. But before the dream's fulfilled, which is striking, look at verse 27. He appeals to him. He says there, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. And then Daniel Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. And there may be, there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. So though, is, though God is absolutely sovereign, Daniel utterly appeals to him to break off from his pride, to break off from his sin. To break off, if you will, from his hubris. He thought he was so great. Remember in chapter 3, he built the image in the plains of Dura, 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide. It was, a, uh, it was of gold and it was dedicated to himself. And even after the dream was revealed in two, he's so prideful. And so it was revealed and interpreted. Daniel gives an appeal there. But sadly, the dream is fulfilled, and this is where we pick up the text. Look at verse 28. All this came upon the king Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months. And just remember, I stated that. After the dream, God graciously 
mercifully gives this man one more year, 12 more months. It could be that he's extending grace to you as I speak. It could be that you know the truth and people have told you the truth. You have a Daniel or a Danielle in your life who's been speaking to you and you're playing Russian roulette with God's grace. But here's Nebuchadnezzar, 12 more months go by in verse 28. And he's walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, look at the pronouns. Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my majesty, by my mighty power as a royal residence? And then he said, for the glory of my majesty. He did it all. He took all the credits. He's pagan here, but God raised him up and actually put Israel in subjection to him in chapter one because that was God's plan for that nation because of their long-standing failure to repent. So he raises up Babylon to come in these deportations and take them away. And you'll note there's no credit to God there. He says, I've built this. By my mighty power, this royal residence for the glory of my majesty, in essence, is me, 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 me. Or maybe neb, 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 neb. It's all about him. Now, the text says, and let me just take a moment here with you. He's walking on the roof of the royal palace. So here's Nebuchadnezzar. 12 months after the dream, he's on a stroll. He's on his roof. It's very descriptive. And he goes into that soliloquy about his greatness. So what do you mean he's walking on the roof? Well, just understand, he's not talking about my roof or your roof. He's talking about the royal palace. The walls of this palace from things that have been written were 387 feet high. I mean, this is a palace. The the walls themselves were 85 feet wide. The walls were so wide, I think I mentioned last week, that chariots could drive across the top of this roof. And they, I think I said seven, it's four chariots wide could be driven across the top of them. Think of this, the city of Babylon was a perfect square, did you know that? 15 miles on each side. Through this city of Babylon was running the Euphrates River and it flowed right into the midst of the city. We can tell from other writings in Babylon were gardens and palm groves, uh, orchards, farmland dotted the countryside, providing food to feed all the people. Some historians say that there was well over a million people in Babylon. And then, of course, he built for his wife the hanging gardens. It was considered one of the seven wonders of the world. In fact, Leon Wood in his commentary said of these hanging gardens that Nebuchadnezzar was brilliant. He, he built these um, ingenious hoist, if you will, that had been set up and these hoist would take the water out of the Euphrates and it would ascend the water up into these high terraces, if you will, and uh, it was a wonder of the world. Wood said he wasn't just a powerful king. We're talking about a genius here. It's, you know, humanly speaking, a genius. But that's not all. This is him walking on his roof. There's a processional street coming into his palace. And it was decorated on, either, on both sides with enameled bricks. And on those enameled bricks were 120 lions. In Babylonian culture, that was the symbol of Ishtar. And then not only were there 120 lions on these enameled bricks, there were 575 dragons and bulls, the symbol of Marduk and Bel 
their idols. So here from the roof, I'm sure as he's strolling, he could look down. Church history and history tells us he built 53 temples or beautified, a total of 53 rather built or beautified. In fact, Babylon during Nebuchadnezzar's reign was the most magnificent and largest city on the earth. So here he is, he's on a stroll. I mean, I hope there would be none of you here like this. Look what I've done. Look at my business. Look at my homes. And all of a sudden, yes, you're working hard. He did, but he forgot God in the process. In fact, how so? Look back in your Bible in chapter 2. It's very clear here. Remember when Daniel was interpreting that first dream, and he said in 2.37, you, O king, the king of kings, to whom, here it is, the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beast of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them, you are the head of gold. But beloved, rather than giving God glory, look at 430 once again. He says so pridefully there that it was his kingdom. It, and as he's walking on that roof, he, he takes all the glory for himself in 430, built by my, my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty. At his peak would come his humiliation. I mean, it could happen so quick. Proverbs 16, pride goes before, does anybody remember? Destruction, right? And a haughty spirit before a fall. He's about ready to be crushed. In fact, it's frightening to read it. Look at verse 31 of chapter 4. It's frightening. As he's boasting in verse 30, verse 31, while the words were still in the king's mouth, blah, 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 they're, they're blah, blah, it's coming out. There fell a voice from heaven. Here, here's the authoritative voice. Oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it has been spoken. And then this dart, the kingdom has departed from you. And you, verse 32, shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Verse 33 Immediately, just now, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird claws. Wow. Immediately, the word drops. It says for a period of seven times. We know from 725, a year is related to a time. So for seven years, this isn't like a problem for a week. This isn't like just dealing with a sickness for a half a year or a year. He is seven years, his nails curling over, his hair looking like eagle's claws. If you've ever read the account of the end of Howard Hughes' life, you'll see something very similar. He just absolutely took the greatest man on earth and humbled him. 
Hey, he preserved them. There was a stump left with a band of iron until seven periods pass. And you know that the Most High rules. And you might say, well, what happened to him? What happened to Nebuchadnezzar? Let me read and we'll finish this chapter. Look at verse 34. At the end of the days, which means at the end of seven years. Like, I was just trying to think, okay, seven years. At the end of the day, seven years earlier. We've been in this building for five and a half years. Seems like a fairly long time. He's still got another year and a half. This guy was utterly humble. I think I told you last week that some people believe his son was running the kingdom. He goes down. He has a bout with what, I don't need a psychologist to call it. It's lycanthropy. He became like a wolf or boanthropy. He became like an ox. It's a condition that some describe today of this very account but I don't need that. This is the judgment of God on him. But look at it again. At the end of the days, he's, he's speaking now. I, Nebuchadnezzar, huge, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the most high and praised and honored him who lives forever. Look what he said. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. You say, well, what happened? Well, you can see it there. It says he uses that phrase, I lifted my eyes toward heaven. I don't want to read too much in that, but in biblical uh, scripture, that is a phrase being likened to the prodigal son when he went back. It is a phrase that's implying repentance and an act of faith. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar gets done with that time. And by the way, he's probably 40 years down the road from chapter 1. Daniel has likely been sharing the good news of the gospel with him for 40 years, but it was at the end of this seven-year period that he lifted up his eyes. There's submission bound in his language. There is a surrender there. There is a humility there. In other words, his fight is over, and it says there that God graciously restored his mental faculties, at least to say this here, that Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges that the God of heaven is sovereign. He lifted up his eyes. Psalm 123, some of you know that by heart. To you, the psalmist said, I lift up my eyes. You are enthroned in heaven. Behold, as the eyes of the servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of your maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes, I love that phrase, look to the Lord our God until he has mercy upon us. A wonderful statement there. You say, well, tell me more about this. Let me put it this way. What follows is three proclamations, okay, on the sovereignty of God that leads to a very distinct response. This is the word for you, okay? What, what, what can we take out from these last verses? Three proclamations on the sovereignty of God that leads to a direct response. Some of you have asked me in the past weeks, was Nebuchadnezzar saved? It's a big question. Tons of ink is, is spilled on that. And rather than me theologizing before you, let's let the text, let's let Nebuchadnezzar's words help us. Here's these three proclamations. First, he recognized, did Nebuchadnezzar, that the living God is to be worshipped. He recognized, at least here looking at 34, that the living God is to be worshipped. There is a massive change of heart here, okay? And he uses three strong 
actually, I was going to say words, they're participles expressing out of his own mouth, off his own lips, what he's never said before. You tell me. He blessed, he praised, he honored. The word honor in the Hebrew is simply the word for glory. He blessed, praised, and honored. Look at verse 34, the God who lives forever. That's a fascinating statement. It's not Nebuchadnezzar building that statue out in the plains of Dura so that he would live forever. He comes to a point in his life after being sent down to his knees in the grass and looking like an ox to blessing and praising and honoring I would put it this way, the eternality of God who lives forever. In theology, we would refer to this as the aseity of God. That's a big word. It just means that God is eternal. That God, this is what the word means, and it's all throughout Scripture, that he's self-existent. You know that. That he's the uncaused being. That he is independent from everything and everyone and he doesn't need anything. I mean, I would submit to you, this is what happens when one is converted to the gospel. You worship the most high God who lives forever. God's kingdom is forever, not man's, okay? Not Nebuchadnezzar's. You say, is there a distinction here from his life before? Yeah, I think so. Look back in chapter 2 just for a second. Here's what he said after that dream that just kept him up and uh, the dream was revealed and then interpreted by Daniel again. Do you remember? And he said, your kingdom will be succeeded by an inferior kingdom and then another kingdom is going to come. First, it's going to be the Medo-Persians. We'll get to that. Then it's going to be the Greek kingdom with Alexander the Great. Then there's going to be an iron kingdom, which was Rome. And Nebuchadnezzar knew that that man had the divine ability to interpret that dream. But I just show you something. Look at 247, watch the language. The king answered at the end of that and said to Daniel, you catch the language here? Truly, your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. Daniel, your God, not my God, your God, and I'm going to add him to all my other gods would be the thought. So whatever he did for Nebuchadnezzar, when he saw the miracle of their life in the training regime in chapter 1, he reveals the dream in chapter 2. Your God is, as far as at this moment, your God, not my God, is greater. Look at chapter 3. Do you remember, of course, I won't take you through it, when the three men were thrown into the fiery furnace and they came out at the end of 27, no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, blessed be the God Not my God, but blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who has sent his angel and delivered his servants. And he does does say there, and no other, you may not serve and worship any other God except their own God. But here, the God whom Nebuchadnezzar did not honor, this is the sovereignty of God. The God whom he, you know, the Nebuchadnezzar did not honor, he now honors. This is the fruit of repentance. You say, what do you mean by that? When you become supernaturally regenerated by the Spirit of God, your life changes from the inside out. And here... In that first aspect here of recognizing the living God, he's to be worshipped. He blessed, he praised, he glorified, or he honored. This is what a believer does. It's a sudden transformation, yes, but nevertheless, there is a new song on your heart. 
He once saw, Nebuchadnezzar did, Babylon as his. Now he lifts his eyes to heaven in recognition of the sovereign God who's eternal, who lives forever. There is a change of life in this man. I remember, I don't know if I, maybe I've shared this with you before many years ago. I uh, got a call. I was pastoring in Chicago and I got a call from uh, my pastor, is what I call him, John MacArthur. And he said, do you think, Scott, you can go up to northern Chicago? I'm living uh, west of downtown Chicago in the suburbs. There's a, a friend up there who, would you just go share the gospel with him? And I said, sure, I'll do that for you. So I took one of my elders with me and we went up to see a man named Carl Herwalt. And um, John would have known his family because Carl's brother, Lou Herwalt, who has a, a car dealership, maybe some of you have heard that name before, in Fresno, this was his brother. And his brother is dying. He's probably 70 years old. And you go in that as pastoral, you're not sure what to think. And he did not know the Lord. He was rejecting the gospel. He rejected his family. And me and a fellow elder went in and just shared the good news with him. I don't know any other way to say that the Lord had prepared his heart that a man of 70 who lived for himself who was in a late stage, I believe, of cancer, right then and there, gave his life to Christ. 70 years old, didn't want anybody to tell him anything, but God had prepared his heart and we shared the gospel with him. And what was so amazing, if you could see it, his brother Lou, when I saw him next, tears streaming down his face for the salvation of his brother to the hearing of the gospel. This is a little bit of what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Just as Nebuchadnezzar now blessed, praised, and honored God, the eternal one, he came out with a new heart and Carl came out with a new heart at 70 years of age. Listen, when the gospel, here's the point to you, becomes clear to an individual, one is marked by a newfound joy, a newfound love that manifests itself in blessing, in praise, and honor to God. There is a distinct response, and the distinct response should be worship, worship. Not I walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, signed on the dotted line. I went to this when I was a young kid. No, out of your heart, out of your life, this is what God did in this man's life. So he recognized to say this, at least here, a change of heart that he's the living God and that he worshiped God. Secondly, he recognized God as a sovereign king. He recognized him as a sovereign king. You say, how so? Look at verse 34, the second portion. For his dominion, not Nebuchadnezzar, is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. This is the point of chapter 4. Beloved, God's kingdom is without end. God is ever on his throne. Five times in chapter four, the text states that God is the sovereign king over all nations and all kings. Let me just show you, just to get this point in your mind. Look at four, verse 17. There's the theme, the sentences, the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. 
Look at verse 25 towards the middle where it says, leave the stump and its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field and let him be wet with the dew of heavens and let his portion be with the beast of the field. That's verse 23. Till seven periods of time. But look at the end of 25. It says, he will be like an ox. Verse 25. And you shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know, second time, that the most high rules the kingdom of men, and he gives it to whom he will. Look at verse 26. And it was commanded to leave the stump and its roots of the tree. Your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from that time that you know that heaven rules. What does it mean that the most high rules? Well, the name, if that name that comes up in chapter 4 is not used just here. It's used all the way back in Genesis when Abraham returned from the battle against the kings and he met this man. Do you remember in Genesis 14? Melchizedek, who was called the priest of the most high God. And then the next phrase says, ruler of heaven and earth. That phrase explains the name. The name Most High does not refer to God as Redeemer. It refers to Him as Most High and Sovereign over all. He is the Most High God who is the one who rules not only in heaven but also on earth. In fact, how powerful, how sovereign He is. Look back to chapter 2 and verse 44 where it says there, remember at the end of that dream in the days of those kings, which I believe is still future, we'll get there. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand. There it is, forever. Listen, here's what Nebuchadnezzar knew now, at least in this statement is that nothing can destroy God's eternal kingdom. Man-made king, kings and even kingdoms come and go, but God's kingdom remains forever. Nothing can ever thwart the sovereign plan of God. Stalin can't do that. Marx can't thwart it. Putin can't thwart it. Reagan came and was gone. Bush came and was gone. Biden is there now and will be gone. And what Nebuchadnezzar is saying is not my kingdom, but God's kingdom is a lasting kingdom. Nothing happens, listen, beloved, by chance. Every nation, every event depends upon, as Calvin said, he called it God's secret providence. You say, what is that? That nothing happens but what has been decreed and commanded. This is what Nebuchadnezzar learned. You say, what does that mean to me? It just means this, that God is in charge and you are not. God is in charge and no political agenda is greater than God's. He's orchestrating every event, every king, every circumstance to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes back at a second coming and will rule over all. God is in charge and you are not. I mean, we are taught and I suppose there's a balance here. Self-sufficiency, hard work, self-reliance. You can do this. You got this. But the ultimate truth is this, God is in charge and you are not. Psalm 115.3 says this, and you've probably heard it before, that God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. He's in control, his kingdom is forever. Isaiah 14.27 says there, for the Lord of hosts has purposed 
And who will annul it? The answer is no one. His hand is stretched out. And who can turn back his hand? No one. Why? He's sovereign. King Nebuchadnezzar has come a long way to state what he did in 434. Remember back in chapter 3 when he said, If you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God, small g, who will deliver you out of my hands? Well, here now, after that period of seven years, Nebuchadnezzar is no longer sovereign. He knows that he is nothing before his Lord. What, what, what are you saying at this? Well, this is the mark of a new heart. We are not the king. You are not King Kong. You say, but I've been given these gifts. Well, are they for you? Or are they for you to give glory back to God? You realize that everything Nebuchadnezzar was given was by God, was twisted to where he thought he did it. And some of you might even think, look what I've done when I'm telling you Almighty God has sovereignly dialed both the trial as well as the good benefits to you, and we all need to be a people of praise. I think Nebuchadnezzar's got a new heart. When we come to Christ, our life is transferred from dependence on self and transferred to God, who is the sovereign king. That's a distinct response. He's the living God and you worship him. Here the distinct response is he's a sovereign king and you need to bow. But of course a believer has because when you get regenerated, you're no longer in control of your life. You move over in the driver's seat of the Christian life and you become in the passenger. He drives. He's the one who makes a decision and helps you with a business in a personal relationship. All of that stuff comes under the sovereignty of God and I think a believer knows that. And thirdly, finally, here's another uh, radical response. Nebuchadnezzar recognizes the frailty of man. Look at chapter four, verse 35. He said, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? In other words, I think I believe here the one who built the statue to himself is now in his own words accounted as nothing. In other words, there's a frailty of man. He's king and you begin to see our weaknesses. Isaiah 40, 15, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. You say, well, this is a tough world we live in. I, I know, but God's in sovereign control, is he not, amen? You can go crazy if you don't think that. You just go crazy with another law that the Democrats shot down against child trafficking in the state of California. Obviously, that is a wicked evil. How do you explain it? I don't. So we fight those things. We, we support the right movement. Do that and be active. But all I know is he's going to raise a king up. He's going to raise a judge up. And he's going to raise him up either for good and righteousness, Romans 13, or he may even raise him up so that that particular country is judged. It says in Isaiah 40, 17, all the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. In other words, he's king, but here we're so frail. People are not in control. God is in Isaiah 40, 22. It is he, God, who sits, interesting, on the circle of the earth. Therefore, if you're a flat earth, you, you lose something here, okay? But he's sitting on the circle. In other words, he's over it. And it says, and its inhabitants are like what? Grasshoppers. Nebuchadnezzar knew that now. In other words, he's, he understood something of his nothingness, and this is what happens when you come to Christ, right? You, you say, how do I know if I've come to Christ? Well, tell me. Do you honor, praise, and bless him? Secondly, is he Lord and King of your life? And thirdly, when you've come to Christ, you have an utter 
uh, insufficiency of your own self to pull yourself up by the bootstraps because we're so frail. He knew this. Look at verse 35. It says that he does according to his will among the host of heaven. In other words, he exercises his divine sovereignty over all in heaven and earth. God's power is so strong that none can stay his hand, thwart the sovereign hand of God in all earth or heaven. None can restrain the purposes of God. None can say to God, what have you done? No one can even question God's authority. Romans 9, who are you, O man, to tell the maker what should be done? In fact, look at verse 36. This is the end, sort of. At that that time, my reason returned to me. And amazingly, and for the glory of my kingdom. Okay, you're like, okay, where's he at? My majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me. And I was established in my kingdom. And then this, and still more greatness was added to me. What is that? (laughs) I just think it's God's grace. It's God's grace to even return him to that place. You say, is he the same guy? No. You say, why do you say no? Put your eyes in the text at the last verse. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise. Sounds like a believer to me. And extol and honor, glorify, the king of heaven for all his works. He's citing the character of God, are right, and his ways are just I believe in the white spaces, I think he's talking about himself. He was right to do this to me. He was just to do this to me. And then he adds this last phrase, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Wow. I mean, who knew that a murderer, an idolatrous idolatrous king who took captive God's people, forced them into idolatry, meant most of them, would one day bless, honor, and praise the Most High God. Nebuchadnezzar did. I mean, who knew that the one who made the exiles bow to a blasphemous image would one day bow his knee, his own knee, to the king of the universe? I mean, who knew that an insane king who robbed God's glory, would now give God glory because he knew that all of God's ways are right and just. I mean, who knew that the very one who almost destroyed the remnant would now be numbered himself among the remnants? Who knew that the very one who crushed earthly, worldly powers under his feet would come one day to be a worshiper and sit under the feet of God. I believe, beloved, we will see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. What do you think? I mean, you know, I don't, some think, I'm not so sure, but I'm thinking this looks like the testimony of a regenerated man, and if God can break a proud king like Nebuchadnezzar, then he can reach, put their name in it. He could reach someone like Pam, who, as a 20-year-old, I knocked on her door to follow her up at my home church. I was in an evangelism program. I think I've mentioned this to you before. And first time out, I was with Patty, who was not my girlfriend, not my fiance at that point. We were just in that class together that followed up the visitors. The visitors would come on Sunday, we'd take the cards, and we'd go, go to their house. Never met this woman. Pam knocked on her door. I said, hi, we're from Grace Church. You visited us, and we just want to sit with you. And there was three of us that did that, Patty, myself, and a friend of ours. And we went in and just begin to share the gospel. I'm 20 years old, Patty's 18, and sitting with a a woman probably in her late 20s, 30s, early 30s, and we begin to share the gospel with her. And I'm like, in the back of my mind, I'm like, am I doing this right? 
Uh, do, I, do, I, do I got it down? Did I have it down? Did I say the right thing? Did I, did I go over the right scriptures? They were training us how to give the gospel. I felt the weight of that. And then as she's sitting on the couch, I could still see it right now. Tears just started streaming out of her face. And I thought, oh, I'm thinking to myself, I really blew it. I just was sharing the free offer, the free gift of the gospel. And I thought it did, I did it wrong. And I thought she was offended. I said, Pam, are you okay? She goes, are, are you telling me that it's a free gift? That's what she said. I said, it's a free gift. There's not anything you can do for it. She goes, wait a minute. It's free that he would forgive she, she was so overcome by the Spirit of God that she couldn't believe that the offer of the gospel was free. And right there, we knelt down and she had given her life to Christ. Listen, I want to encourage you. If God can save a Nebuchadnezzar and change his hard heart, if God can bring Nebuchadnezzar to his knees, then God can bring anyone to his knees. Amen? Who are you praying for? I give thanks that a couple weeks ago when Mark Spence preached the gospel, somebody came to Christ. Listen, open your mouth. Daniel witnessed to him. I'm thinking, you think how old is Daniel here? A teenager, and I think I've told you, no. He's in his 50s by this time. He witnessed to Nebuchadnezzar by this time for at least 40 years. Jesus Christ saves people like Nebuchadnezzar because he came not to call the righteous, but what? Sinners to what? Repentance. Listen, I'm all done. Do you remember that great old song, To God Be the Glory? Remember that? We used to sing that. That's an older song. Oh, perfect redemption. Can you sing that tune? The, the, it says, the, the purchase of blood to every believer, the promise of God the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, forgiveness receives. There's Nebuchadnezzar and I would say all of us before Christ.